You're listening to From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy, a food and culture podcast. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food writer based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Every week on Wednesdays, I'll be talking to different people in food and culture about their lives, careers, and how it all fits together and where food comes in. Today, I'm talking to Angela Garbus, the author of Like a Mother, a feminist journey through the science and culture of pregnancy, and the new Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change. We discussed how her past as a food writer continues to inform her work, what mothers who are creative workers need to thrive, spoiler, it's basically what all workers need to thrive, informal knowledge building, and the significance of having an unapologetic appetite as a woman. Hi, Angela. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Alicia. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Sure. I grew up in rural central Pennsylvania. So I'm people can't see this, but this is roughly the shape of Pennsylvania, my hand. <laughs> and I grew up here in what I call the ass crack of Pennsylvania. <laughs> and it was a very small town, um, about 4,000 people. And I was one of um, very few people of color. And my parents are immigrants from the Philippines. You know, I would say that from a very young age, I was like, oh, we're different. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we had a fairly typical, you know, like my parents are both medical professionals. So we had a pretty typical, I would say, fairly typical as you could get um, middle class uh, upbringing. And as far as what we ate, I, I look back on it now and I think of it as like a, a perfect combination of it was like 50 percent American quote-unquote American convenience food, like um, a lot of hamburger helper, a lot of old El Paso soft-shell tacos, a lot of Little Caesars pizza, a lot of Philly cheesesteaks. And then the other half, we ate Filipino food. Right. Um, sinigang, adobo, arroscaldo, tinola. And, you know, I remember my dad, like, hacking up pig's feet. You know, I would come downstairs and he'd be cooking up, things like that. And so when I look back on it now, I think it was... I mean, I love Filipino food so much, but I also, I mean, I love all kinds of food yeah. um, and I kind of <laughs> eat anything. And it's partly, I think, because I was just exposed to a lot of things. But um, my parents, you know, we lived in this really small town and they couldn't get all of the ingredients that they wanted to make traditional dishes, but um, they kind of improvised with what they had. And because they were so committed to cooking Filipino food, sort of against the odds, I would say, you know, we did a lot of there were not vegetables that available. Like you couldn't get okra or green papaya. So we would use like the zucchini and, you know, frozen okra to make sinigang. But it was such a way for them to stay connected to their culture. And I feel so grateful to them because what they did was really pass that down onto me. Um, from an early age, I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is my food. Like this is who I am. And I've never lost that. And I've always mm -hmm. loved that. And yeah, so it was sort of this wonderful, healthy mix, I think. I mean, I think yeah. it was that for sure. And, you know, it, it was so interesting to realize because I don't think I'd realized it before that you were a food writer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> until I got into your books, I was like, wait. And like, like, uh, like a mother, your first book starts out mm -hmm. like, so like such a rich piece of food writing. And I'm like, wow, now I understand. And then I'm like, no. <laughs> and then, and then I realize I'm like, oh, she is a food writer. So, you know, you know how you you've come to write your two books about motherhood, but you know you're also a food writer and you're writing about food in these books as well. How did you become a food writer? First of all, thank you for saying that because <laughs> I miss food writing, and I, I think at heart, 
I am a food writer and I think it informs, mm-hmm. you know, the way I portray sensory detail and physical experiences. But yeah, so the way I became a food writer was sort of, um, it was really my entry into writing, but it happened the year, the year was 2005, <laughs> I think. And, you know, I had gone to college and studied creative writing, but like a lot of things, I just thought just because I like doing something doesn't mean I get to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's a lesson that a lot of writers could come stand to like, internalize. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I sort of worked in these like uh, writing adjacent slash dying industries. You know, I worked as an independent bookseller. I worked for a nonprofit poetry press, which is still going, actually, I should say. And then I worked as an ad sales rep at an alt weekly. And, you know, I obviously I wish that I was a writer there, but I had no designs on writing. Right. I was, um, you know, I was partying a lot with the ad salespeople and we were just, it was a, it was a, I mean, all weeklies are, I'm so proud to have started like all my writing in my like career and adult life there. It was a good time. <laughs> um, so I was working in ad sales and at the time, uh, David Schmader and Dan Savage, who are the like editorial people, uh, they said, Hey, do you want to write? Do you want to submit? I was leaving to take mm-hmm. another job. And they were like, hey, do you want to submit a sample food writing piece? And I was like, me? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, why? (laughs) And um, yes, and why? And they both said, well, we know you write. We know that you have like a writing background because I was friends with a lot of writers. And they were like, but you're just always walking around the office talking about where you went to dinner, talking about what you cooked talking about what you ate and like everyone in the office wants to go out to lunch with you. Everyone <laughs> wants you to invite, invite them over for dinner. And I was like, oh, okay. And so then I just did it as like a one-off and something clicked where, you know, I had been writing fiction. I had been like writing bad poetry. But when I started writing about food, I was like, here's everything. Here's yeah. everything that I was thinking about, like food to me. And this is what I think it has in common really with motherhood. It's and mothering really is a lens to mm-hmm. see the world. And yeah. it's a lens into like, I mean, the sky's the limit about what you can talk about, right? Or what you want to talk about. And so, I mean, when I started, it was like, here, write a review of this place that's doing mini burgers at happy hour, right? Or, <laughs> and I started doing restaurant reviews, which was very servicey, mm-hmm. which in some ways I hated, but in some ways I'm grateful for. Right. Like meeting a weekly deadline and like thinking about your audience and being of use. That's something that I think about all the time still. <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, when I started doing it too, I felt really like I came into it absolutely with a chip on my shoulder. I was like, okay, so I'm Filipina. I never hear about Filipina food. Um, Why do we call places holes in the wall, right? Right. Like that's racist. (laughs) Why are we willing to pay $24 for a plate of pasta but people get up in arms when someone wants to charge $14 for pho? You know, I feel like this is like where I was coming from. Yeah. And there wasn't really a lot of space for that, (laughs) I will say. So there was, I felt a little limited. You know, I think about sometimes like what it would be like to start my career now. I feel like people have created a lot of space. It's not like just the space has opened up, but right. um, like the, the scene has changed. I took a like forced hiatus from food writing because of the Great Recession where they were like, we don't need freelancers anymore. <laughs> I came back to it though when I, um, so in, God, what year was this? It would have been 2012, 2013. 2013 and 2014, I was pregnant and I had actually decided, you know, just because I'm good at writing doesn't mean I get to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, I need to figure out something more practical to do in my life. Mm -hmm. So I had applied to go to graduate school, actually, to get a master's in public health 
and nutrition. And I wanted to work with immigrant communities to help them have culturally appropriate diets. You know, like not everyone was just going to eat kale, which is what mm-hmm. people were like shop at the farmer's market. So yeah, I mean, and I like took classes at the local community college. I took like biology, chemistry, all the shit that I didn't take as an English major in the mid nineties. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I got accepted. But then when I was pregnant, the stranger, the all weekly called me and they were like, hey, we're hiring a food writer. And are you interested in applying? And I was like, this chance is never going to come around. Again. Right. Yeah. And so I was like, yeah, I'll take it. And so this was, um, this is a really long answer. Sorry. <laughs> I love it. Um, so this 2014. And I started back and it was restaurant reviews, but it was also when $15 an hour was going really strong here in Seattle. Um, and I really wanted to explore the labor aspect of that. And what was that like for workers? And then my secret goal, I, I had a, I had a great editor who was Korean American and she and I were like, yes, like every two weeks, there will be a picture of a brown or black person to go with the restaurant review. And so it was all this stuff. Like I, I felt like I finally got a chance to do what I really wanted to be doing. It was like moving towards that. And then I wrote this piece about breastfeeding, which at the time I, they asked me to pitch a feature. They're like, you've been here on staff long enough. Like, what do you want to write about? And I was like, I definitely need to write about breast milk. <laughs> and no one in the editorial room was like, it was just like it landed like a dead bird in the middle of the feed. Uh, and I was like, well, I kind of just want to do this for myself. And I felt it was very much an extension of my beat because I was like, here I am. I'm thinking about food. I'm producing food. I am food. <laughs> I'm eating food. <clears throat> and so I wrote this piece and ended up going viral, which is how right. I got the opportunity to write my first book. And I wanted to take a leave of absence because I really wanted to come back to my job. And uh, they said, no, we're not going to hold a job for you. We're just going to piece it out on contract. And so then I kind of had to figure out what I was going to do afterwards. And so then I was like, maybe I'll just try writing books. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, that's my very long answer into how I got into food work. <laughs> it was like the right place, the right time talking about it because yeah. that was just like it felt very um it was just my life yeah no I think that that that's such a common obviously I talk to a lot of people how did like why food how food how did that happen and then a lot of the time especially with women who wanted to be writers myself included we didn't see it as an option necessarily or like, but when we came to it, it, everything kind of fell into place, which is what happened for me too. Like once I started yeah. to focus my life on food, everything made sense. Cause I was mm-hmm. doing like copy editing and, and working for like tiny literary magazines and like, and yeah, and just thought I was going to have like a weird literary career, hopefully. And then uh-huh. I just started cooking one day and just never stopped. And then like, yeah. so it's just like, like that, it just changed everything. I'm kind of, I'm writing about this right now, actually, like how gender plays into this and like whether, you know, the idea of like being allowed to love to cook when you're a woman and, and that sort of thing, which actually mm. I wanted to ask you about because there is a fabulous chapter in your new book, Essential Labor, called Mothering as Encouraging Appetites. And it's so much about our gendered relation relationship to having an appetite, you know, like whether, Mm -hmm. whether a woman, whether a girl is allowed to have an appetite and how you are actively encouraging your, your daughters to, to be okay with their appetites. And when it reminded me of when I was a kid and like, I had this friend who I took dance classes with and our moms would be like, Oh, you're going to have to like date a rich man or something because you eat so much. And then like, (laughs) 
<laughs> this was like a joke about how our, our I, I'm trying. I don't, this when I recalled this memory, it's not a joke my mother would make. So I'm assuming it was a different the other mother. But um, it was just this whole thing. Yeah, right. But it's like a it's definitely like an ambient joke, right? It's That's an just ambient floating joke. around. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. So this this chapter certainly reminded me of that. And like, you know, I was really lucky, like to grow up without anyone ever questioning my appetite in a real way. Like it was mm-hmm. it was always something to be like proud of a little bit to be a girl who ate a lot. Like that was kind of yeah. like it was it was OK in, in my world, at least. And so, yeah, I just I wanted to ask what was what was your inspiration for putting this piece in in this book specifically and, and how that worked? Because it is about the labor of feeding, but it's also about the labor of like self-acceptance and, and, and yeah. kind of excavating ourselves from these societal expectations. Yeah. I mean, I want to back up a little bit to what sure. you were saying about how, like when I, when I started writing about food um, and when you started writing my food, a lot of things started to make sense. Right. Yeah. And I felt that way very strongly, like inside of myself, but it felt like there wasn't quite an audience that was keyed into what I was trying to say. And I will say at the time that I started writing about food, it was very like, you can have an appetite um, and you can write about loving food and you can be, it was a lot of, you know, like, I think people use like the, the phrase, like the quote golden era of like food yeah. blogging. And um, to me, it was never really that. Like, I didn't feel like those things, I didn't feel represented in that. It was a lot of like, you can have a tremendous appetite for baguette, right? Yeah. But um, <laughs> and no, no diss to baguette, right? But it was very like, uh, you know, like Francophilic and it was very like be thin and be white. Yeah. Right. So I don't I just don't really understand. I didn't I couldn't square having the sort of appetite and having the body that I had with, you know, quote unquote, mainstream food writing by women. Right. I want to say that because I think that that's true for a lot of women of color. Yeah. And I think that that space is thankfully growing. But I think it's because it's, you know, it's an insistence on um, taking up space and an insistence on like not being pushed to the margins, which is really what the motivation of that chapter was. Right. I felt like there's so many things I have been thinking about in terms of the food and that like, I mean, that chapter to me is very much food writing. I was right. real jazzed when I was writing. I loved <laughs> being able to describe the flavors um, and the Filipino food that I grew up with. And yeah, like i I wish that I could explain, and I write about this, how I was like, I don't know why I never, like, diet culture never got to me, you right. know? Like, and I think for a lot of girls, like, being, who are lucky enough to come from a family where, like, it is a beautiful thing to have an appetite. Mm-hmm. The thing that often happens, though, is around, like, when you're 12 or 13 or 14, then suddenly it's not a great right. to have an appetite, right? Like, or it's yeah. a thing to be managed because you're, everything's changing, everything's expanding, right? Everything's growing. <laughs> Yeah, like before when you're when you're eating a lot, you're chubby and you're healthy. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you become fat. You become mm-hmm. too much. And so I was sort of wrestling with that. And also this feeling that my body just like never really fit in into the culture, into the small town where I grew up in. And then my body is just larger than my mother's. She's a very, very small <laughs> Filipino woman. And, you know, Filipina elders are the first people to be like, eat, eat food, eat so much food, come in here, eat food. And then they'll also be the first people to be like, wow, you got really fat. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, um, it's an interesting thing. So, you know, this chapter was me sort of working out a lot of those feelings. Right. And how I know at a young age, I had just decided, well, I guess being, I've never been interested in taming my appetites. And that's not yeah. just for food. It's like for pleasure, for like, you know, I always want another round of drinks, you know, yeah. like 
And it's, <laughs> to me, I think I always just decided like being a little bit too much, being a little bit fat, that was okay with me because I don't know how to control my appetite. <laughs> and I didn't want to, like, I don't want right. to say no to that. And then yeah. I think there is something really powerful about, you know, again, like my love of Filipino food, like helped me take up space and it helped me clarify who I was mm-hmm. and how I wanted to take up space in this world. Like I did not want to quiet that part of my identity to write about food, which also meant that for a while I didn't write about food, right. you know, like I figured something else out that I would do. And so when I think about that, like I, I just think about like, you know, it is like it is it is about encouraging appetite in my daughter. But it's really like to me, this book is I hope it's relevant to everyone. You know, for me, a lot of this is like how I mothered myself right, right. into the place where I am now and seeing the way I was mothered and the things that um, I kind of wish I could have had. And I don't fault my mother for this, but she just wasn't she just wasn't able to do that. Um, but the things that I had to mother myself into were acceptance. And that's like work that I'm still doing every day. Mm-hmm. But um, I think, you know, we don't write as I, I don't hear as much about people who are trying to manage that. And who yeah. are trying to take up space, but who still struggle with feeling like, I wish I looked a certain way, even though I'm so proud of being who I am. It's really complicated. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, like appetite and identity and food and all of that is, it's a very tangled web in my mind. So this was kind of like my attempt to, you know, just sort of unpack and understand. Something. Right. No, and I loved it because I, I do think too not too much, but as women, especially when we're writing about appetite, we're writing about diet culture. And mm-hmm. you very rarely hear from someone who makes the decision to just not ever decide to tame the appetite, you know, and, yeah. and what that means and what that looks like. And like, I think I thought that's why I thought this, this chapter was really important because of that, because for me, you know, I don't, yeah, I like, I was like, oh, I see myself, rec- I recognize myself in this because yeah, I love to eat. I've always loved to eat and I've never not going to eat a lot. Like, <laughs> like, like No, and that's like, one of the things that I love about your work is that I feel like you are unapologetic in your appetite and in your consumption, but you are right. also like deeply thoughtful about it. You know what I mean? Like these things are like, they are nuanced. Do you know what I mean? And you never, yeah. I just feel like we're not allowed, we're, like we're supposed to not have an appetite. Yeah. Like, we're supposed to have an appetite, but somehow pretend that we don't have an appetite or I don't know, like really, I mean, I think also it's like when I am indulging my appetites, I feel like an animal. I feel like I'm no different than an animal. I'm a human animal. And I just think like we're not encouraged to do that as women. We're not encouraged to just like fully inhabit ourselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think all people, but especially women. Yeah. And so, I mean, I love seeing people out there doing there. We are out here, you know? (laughs) And this is my like, you know, it's a little bit of like my stake in the ground. I'm planting a flag, you know, but there would be no mistake. (laughs) Well, to talk about kind of the animal aspect of (laughs) of food and appetite and, and, and also being a mother, which is that you wrote, obviously the piece that went viral is about breastfeeding. The, my only experience in thinking about this, of course, because I'm not a mother is that like the way, you know, vegans or vegetarians write about the, the ways in which breastfeeding changes their relationship to dairy. Like that's Mm. a really common thing, but, um, I wanted to ask how that topic and writing about that topic and kind of like that, that topic sort of changing the trajectory of your work, you know, how, how did that change your relationship to food or food production if it did? Yeah, totally. First of all, I wish that you had been like asking me these questions when my first book came out because (laughs) 
like I love how you're like it's it's really common for vegans to talk about you know dairy and how <laughs> breastfeeding changed their relationship to it. And I was like, I I'm not aware of that like canon of literature, right? And so I think it's it's it it kind of just that question is really exciting to me, and I wish that there was more conversation around that. You know, it is part of writing. You know, this this article about breastfeeding was me being like, why do we drink the milk of a cow? Right. Why is that? Yeah. Like, that's 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 strange. Right. Like, it's strange. And why have we created an entire industry around this? And like, why do when we look at like a food plate, like dairy has a very large section and that's because of the dairy law. Right. That's not because of our like like innate biological needs as human beings. Right. So, yeah, I mean, how I thought about food production 100 percent like it was. I mean, and this is, you know, it sort of lays the path for so many things that I'm thinking about. It was it's work. You know, this yeah. is what your body, this is what female bodies are built to do, right? right. Um, that's just true. This is what sets us apart, mammalians, you know, like <laughs> we are like we produce milk to feed our young. But I had, I just went into it so naive. Like it was a job, you know, I was spending like eight plus hours feeding. Yeah. Eight plus hours that I was like, am I supposed to be being productive? Like I am being productive. Like I'm keeping... I'm doing nothing less than keeping a human alive, right? <laughs> but I'm not being paid to do this. I'm right. not being given time. I'm like in a weird office with a noisy radiator, you know, with another woman, our breasts out, just like pumping, <laughs> right? So it made me think about time and how we value time. And it also like, again, like this was all happening when I was writing about food and there was the fight for a minimum wage of $15 an hour. And my God, how that was so polarizing. And how people just showed their whole asses about how they don't think the workers are valuable or deserving of this thing. And so I, I think, you know, so there is the labor aspect of it that really came into play for me that made me think about, you know, like we, I grew up saying grace because I grew up Catholic, right? And when we remember to say grace, at, my girls do it with my parents. So when we remember to say grace at our house, we say, you know, thank you to the people who grew the food who picked the food, who, you know, who transported the food, who prepared the food. So I think now like the sort of supply chain of food um, and how it is produced is something that's always top of mind. And like, how right. do you negotiate having like an ethical relationship to that? I know this is stuff that you have thought about. <laughs> um, this is stuff that like really came to the forefront, right? And then also balancing that economically, right. because, you know, breastfeeding is in a country that does not give paid leave it's an economic privilege to be able to do that. And then people who cannot breastfeed, there's very little money put into understanding that and seeing is that like oftentimes people feel like that's a failure on their part, not as opposed to like, is it a signal about something about the health of the mother, right? Mm -hmm. Could we be, this is sort of like going off a little tangent, but I think that there's, yeah. so there's a lot of that kind of stuff, like in right. the labor of it and how we value women's bodies. Right. And also just like the general chain of, of food production for sure. It 100% like made me think of all of those things. And so now I'm always thinking about like someone made this food, right? Yeah, someone yeah. produced this food in some way, a being, a living thing, mm -hmm. whether it is a plant or an animal right, or a person. <laughs> yeah, it just like, I mean, mothering, mother, becoming a mother really reframed everything for me. You know, it is like that care that my body couldn't help but do, you know, mm -hmm. like my body right. did. And then suddenly I felt like, it's a very beautiful thing to be able to do this. It's a very important thing. It was very meaningful to me. It was also, I was like chained to a chair 
and like change your person. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that's, <laughs> I, I mean, that's what, that's where I'll leave it. That's like, a, like another long answer. But, you know. <laughs> no, no. Did you, have you read the book to write as if already dead by Kate Zambrino? It no, came out last no. year. I think you'll like it. She writes a lot about the body and like, and being, I think it's, 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 it has a lot of parallels to your work, but is also, you know, just more like personal, I guess. But, um, she, she writes about having her first kid and then getting pregnant and then, and like, and like amidst the pandemic, like not being treated like a human being, but like a vessel and then, and Mm -hmm. all the seeing the labor of like the people bringing every, anyway, I think you'll like the book. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. I'll read it. (laughs) But, you know, and there are so many parallels in both like a mother and essential labor to what I've been thinking about in food, you know, formal versus informal knowledge institutions Mm. versus communities, like individual versus systemic, the political role of care. And so I wanted to ask how the understanding of the significance of something like informal knowledge building when it comes to motherhood affected your your perspective on, you know, other subjects. As you've said, you know, motherhood changed your whole lens on the world. But like specifically that kind of like figuring out where how to learn from community and informal knowledge rather than like constantly just taking the word of the (laughs) <laughs> the institutions. Yeah. You know, I mean, motherhood was a big part of that, but I would say that it was all, I don't know. I just feel like my whole life is learning. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I love that. <laughs> and that's like one of the things that I love about my life. And I, you know, I, I definitely feel like when I, when like I arrived at college, <laughs> I, so again, like I came from a very, very small town in Pennsylvania and I like, I didn't know about a lot of things in the world, you know, and I was like, I'm going to go to New York city. I went to Barnard college, right? Like I arrived there and like everyone there was like, I went to Milton Academy. I went to like, you know, like I, I went to Stuyvesant High and I was like, I don't like Googling, like what are the region's <laughs> exams, right? Like things like that. And I felt so out of place. Do you know what I mean? Like I felt mm-hmm. unprepared and I felt very self-conscious in a way about that. And I also feel like I came into like a formal racial consciousness, right? And class consciousness, like yeah. I mean, when I was at Barnard, it was when I was like, oh, this is how we recreate the ruling class, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> what I'm saying is that I had a lot of informal knowledge. Of course, yeah. And a lot of wisdom growing up, you know, that I kind of trusted and knew, like, you know, I was always like, why are we Catholic? Like, yeah. so it's colonialism. Like, what would we have been <laughs> if we weren't Catholic? And my parents were like, God will provide. Like, what are you talking about? Like, why are we, why are we asking these questions? Right. Yeah. And so I've always had it in me to like question the institution. Right. Unfortunately for my parents, that meant our family institution for many, many years. <laughs> but so like, so, so I came to college and then I was like, oh, it, it's also reckoning with for many, many years, like my definition of success was like, I, you know, like grammar, spelling, right. Like all of that shit, which is like, those are just rules that some guy made up, right? But like, yeah. <laughs> so there's been like coming into this and wanting to succeed on terms, you know, set by white people, being legible to white people and being legible to institutions, which I will not deny, like that has served me well. And mm-hmm. this sort of like ability to kind of code switch in a way that like I sometimes can't even tell the difference, like that's just been a part of my life, right? Yeah. And one of the things though that that happened is, you know, like, coming into consciousness as an adult and just realizing like, oh no, like I was privileged enough to like be educated in these institutions to figure out how to slip into these places. And then to realize like, no, this doesn't, this doesn't speak to me. This actually is not my vibe, right? Like, but what is your vibe then? So you have to kind of go and like figure it out. And I felt sort of free in that. 
you know, and I always felt like really drawn to creative people, but I was never encouraged to, um, you know, pursue like the arts or to pursue creativity or, or my parents were supportive, but like, they don't really understand what I do. I think to this day, still, it's a little bit confusing to them. <laughs> All of this to say that one of the other, before motherhood, one of the big things, and I really need to shout out as my spouse, Will, right. who is, when I met him, he was a community organizer. He's now a labor organizer. And there was just something about, we are so different. But when we met, there was a shared values. There was like a belief in like, everyone's story is important. You know, he, it was all about his thing was like, people come up and they speak their truth to power. And that's when I realized like, oh, yes, like our lived experiences our informal knowledge when collected, just because it's not in a book, just because it's not what's reported, like it is so real and it is so powerful. And he really like his work helped me see that. And mm -hmm. I feel like that was kind of the, the start for me of being like, I want to take what I'm doing and I want to put it in service of something else. And I want it to be um, a harnessing of collective energy and community knowledge. And then mothering with the whole sort of like, ask your doctor, even though like no one has, no one's done any studies on this and like everything they're telling <laughs> you is something someone like said in like 1890, right? Like <laughs> no one's challenged this wisdom. Meanwhile, the, the greatest wisdom that came from birthing and mothering came from midwives and female elders. And that's informal knowledge that was never mm -hmm. put in a book. You know, doctors, when we, when we created medicine, <laughs> when, we, when people invent, when white men invented medicine, they discredited the experience of midwives. And mm -hmm. at the 20th, at the turn of the 20th century in America, 50% of babies were born with midwives who were mostly immigrants and Black women, right? This was very much a working class women's job. So, I mean, this is just my way of saying, I feel like it's, uh, I feel like my whole life has been leading to this sort of like moment and motherhood sort of like refined that lens, maybe a place right. to like, put all of these things, but it's been multiple steps along the way. Of course. You know, and, I'm, and it's been sort of painful. You know what I mean? Like feeling like, oh, I wish I had known this earlier. Yeah. Um, but then realizing like, oh, like, but I know this now. And I think there are many people who want to, who share these values and who, who, who want to like put their faith in more informal knowledge or who don't trust institutions, but don't really know how. You know what I mean? And I feel like that's a journey, like we're all learning. And I feel like, I don't know, it doesn't, I'm old enough to remember when like, we weren't supposed to know everything. Yeah, yeah. I feel like now there's this pressure to like have some sort of expertise in everything. And I'm like, I still don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Like everything <laughs> I'm doing is learning. Like, and that's what's fun. That's part of right. why I like being a writer is just like doing homework yeah. forever. <laughs> no, that's so interesting. Yeah, I feel like this is something I've been thinking about a lot is like there is this kind of like you're not supposed to ask questions. You're not supposed to say, I don't know. You're supposed to right. like come like we're all supposed to have sort of absorbed some sort of bastion of knowledge that we might not even know exists about things that we've never thought about before. But like if you come <laughs> like you're just not allowed to not know things anymore. You're not allowed to be learning. I don't know. It's very weird. I mean, but that's that's more social media than anything else. But mm. how did you, I, because I'm always interested in this. So you went to college in New York. How did you come to live in Seattle? So when I was in college, my parents, long story short, they yeah, had yeah. a midlife crisis. Um, <laughs> and my dad became very disillusioned by managed health care. This was 1997, by the way. <laughs> and so he... um they just decided to make a huge change. Like my dad was miserable and my mom was miserable. They were miserable together. And so 
they decided to like start over and they moved to Washington State. And I was in college and I was just like, I need to get out of New York. So I was like, okay. And now they seem to be doing better. So I'm going to go spend a summer with them. And the Pacific Northwest in the summer is is heaven. It's so beautiful. And I was like, oh, I'll like come out here after I graduate and I'll stay for a couple months and then I'll move back and get a job in in publishing as an editorial Mm -hmm. assistant. Um, (laughs) And that was 1999. And then I just never left. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I spent many years comparing it to the East Coast. And then I just was like, I have it's easier here. And I used to feel yeah. some sort of shame around that, but um, I don't know. It's just more laid back. Yeah. <laughs> I feel really like I, I've written about this. Like I'm, I just don't, I'm not, I don't want to say that I'm not ambitious, but, <laughs> but it's just like, I don't like there's ladders that you climb. There's like places like you, you try to put yourself into institutions, I guess. Yeah. And I'm just like really not about the hustle. I feel yeah. like I work really hard and I'm really not trying to, work harder. Like I like my little life. Before I had a chance to, you know, publish books, having a job as a staff writer and and all weekly was like, that was great. You know? Yeah. Um, and so I kind of like uh, you know, I feel like it's easier to do um, I don't know, community building can be, I don't want to yeah. generalize too much. Yeah. I just like uh I like being in a city. It's a young city. It's a weird city in some ways. It's changing. <laughs> but um yeah, but I like the West Coast. Yeah. I think I'm nice. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm always interested. I can't in go how back. Pe- in how people leave New York, because obviously I'm I'm from Long Island, but I spent a lot of time in New York City, and so then like when and then because I left in 2019, but like didn't really think about it about what I was doing. So I'm yeah. always like, what was the what was the 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 choice? What were the choices that led you away from New York? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think it was the thought that I would come back. And the, the truth yeah. is, I think there's always a little bit of like, I couldn't go back, you know, yeah. like it's all of the same like things are there. They're not going away. Right. But New York also still has the same ugly, modern, new, high rise, weird, like townhome architecture that we get here yeah. in Seattle. It's not like, yeah. you know, not to be like, I mean, I was in, I went to college in New York from 95 to 99. And, you know, I go back now and I'm like, this is so different. <laughs> I was like, you know, and not, it wasn't even like dirty New York then. Right, you right, know? right, right. But yeah, I, <laughs> I like being, I think I just like being a little bit outside things. Yeah. How, no, is, it, um, how is it for you? Like, do you feel like returning or do you feel like you're home or do you kind of feel like it's all open? I would prefer to stay here in San Juan because it, it's an easier life, like you're saying. Yeah. And I talked to Jamie Attenberg too about moving from New York to New Orleans and, and same thing. It's like, it's just easier. Yeah, (laughs) And like for me, especially as a food writer, I feel like it gives me a lot more to talk about and I don't feel like I have to go to the same restaurants as everybody. And like, obviously, I I don't even think I could move back until everything goes differently with the housing situation. Like, it's Mm -hmm. just such a... I mean, that's, it's happening everywhere, but I'm just like watching on Twitter, everyone be like, my landlord just raised my rent $700, $1,200. And I'm like, yeah. I'm never going back. I can never go back. But I mean, we have that problem here too, um, because it's, it's become like a tax haven. <laughs> so there's like all the real estate is absolutely mind boggling. And and like the daughter-in-law of the governor is, is sort of like instrumental in it, which is uh. seems seems like a problem. So, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it's, it, everywhere has its challenges, but yeah, I yeah. feel, I feel really good, you know, having gotten sort of away from New York, you know, when I left New York, I was like bartending and mm-hmm. writing 
And here now I just like have a newsletter. So I don't, right, yeah. I'm like working a lot less hard. <laughs> I mean, I think there's something to be said too of like space. Yeah. Physical space. I have a house. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. I have physical space, which, which is also, it's not necessary, but it does lead to mental space. You know what yeah. I mean? Like things feel more expansive here in a way that like I can go on a long walk, like on a green you know what I yeah. mean? Like, it's yeah. you know, the mountains are 45 minutes that way. Right. Yeah. That way. Sorry for being West. <laughs> um, sorry, East, actually. <laughs> but I think there's just something there where I feel, I don't know. I just, I there's something here where I just feel like I can be myself in a way that I don't, I'm, I'm less like thinking about myself in the context of other people and other right. things. Like I exactly. get to just sort of be in an easy Exactly. No, no. And, and that's, that's really key. Obviously I like, I'm homesick a lot, but I, I, then I just go back, you know, <laughs> and then I'm like, I'm sick of this. Goodbye. <laughs> but also to get back to your book in yeah. essential labor, you talk about the flattening of creative identity that came through being a mother in the pandemic. You know, do you think that it is possible to change how work and caregiving are structured and perceived in the U S and you know, specifically, like, what do you think mothers who are creative workers, thus doing work that's kind of already devalued in our society, you know, what is really needed to thrive? That's a great question. I do think it's possible. Mm-hmm. I have to think it's possible because yeah. I don't, I'm glad that your question wasn't, do you, like, do you hope that this is, you know, like, oh, I, no. I find it hard to be, <laughs> I find it hard to be hopeful about it, like in this moment. But I mean, I didn't, I wouldn't have written this book if I didn't think it was possible. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it will take a very long time, but I think we are due for, I mean, there's, the United States has never reckoned with like all of its original sins, right? <clears throat> but one of them, you know, one of one of the biggest ones at this point that's like a foundation to it is that that care work doesn't matter and has no financial value. So I think, you know, we had these moments. There was the advanced check tax child credit. And then also when we were doing direct stimulus payments, that was not specifically like here's pay for mothering and care work. But um Here's pay for keeping yourself alive and keeping people alive, which is what care work is. Yeah. So I think that people are, that conversation is happening. I think, you know, part of writing this book was there were all these, there were so many people who were suddenly awake to, like the child care crisis is a pre-pandemic problem, right? Like the child care workers live in, are three times more likely to live in poverty. The fact that until your child is age six in the United States, like you're on your own to figure all of that out. And suddenly a lot of white affluent women, to generalize, were realizing that, you know, when care structures fall apart, when your nanny and childcare and babysitters go away, they are left to do all of this work. Like, and that the, mm-hmm. to be a woman in America is to be defined by a condition of servitude. Yeah. And that was a hard fucking lesson. And people reacted in a way that they were rightfully so really angry. And part of writing this book was I was like, this is going to go away, right? Like when schools reopen, people are going to think we solved the childcare crisis, right? When things are not inconvenient, when people can start outsourcing that care again, we're going to lose that momentum. And Mm -hmm. so to a certain extent, like why I also believe it's possible is because I know that for myself and for other people, like I, I will never shut up about this. Yeah. This is something that is foundational and essential to our country and how it functions. And until we properly value that, we're going to have an inhumane and dysfunctional society. 
So, yes, I think it's possible. <laughs> in this particular moment, I feel that it's a much longer fight um, and it's going to be a much harder fight. I don't want it to be a fight, but that's that's where I am on that. Yeah. You know, and in terms of mothers who are doing creative work, I mean, I just think of all people doing creative work, again, like care is an issue that obviously, yes, I'm writing about mothering, but like care is the work of being a human being, yeah. you know? needfulness is the state of being a human being <laughs> and so you know if i'm just like allowed to say what i what i would like to do is like we should just give people money yeah I mean, we have a we live in a very rich country there is enough money to do this if we gave people like a universal basic income a guaranteed adequate income which is not a new idea you know people were working on this like the national welfare rights organization was doing this like they came close to getting it under nixon if we paid people money, if we gave people money and guaranteed a floor of what a decent life is in America, like people could be creative. Yeah. You know, people could do their creative work. People could mother. People could still be really fucking ambitious and try to get a six figure job, like six figure salary job. Like mm -hmm. they could still do that, you know? And I think that that's, you know, we, we made up money. Yeah. Like, <laughs> not like, so we can like, we can make up a new system, you know, that, that gives people, you know, I did this, God, I did this interview for this, like, a, it was like the future of things. It was like the future of work. And I was talking about this and the producer was like, so in your world, when you like meet for drinks with your friends on Friday and someone asks you how work is going, are you like, well, Tommy's like struggling with potty treat. And I was like, no, dude, like in my world, you meet your friends for drinks on Friday and they're like, how are you? Like, we don't talk about, like, we don't talk about work. Like, yeah. We just talk about, like, what are, you, what are you doing, right? And so I think that, yeah, like, I think that what we need to do is, like, guarantee, if, I mean, maybe it's not just an adequate income, maybe, I mean, guaranteed income, maybe it's just, like, healthcare, where yeah. you, like, leave. Like, they need, people need to, like, be able to live a dignified life that doesn't involve work, yeah. you know, that is, like, not defined by work, that is just, that allows them to exist. That's what people need. And that's not just mothers and not just mothers who do creative work that we like mm -hmm. need that. We need that. <laughs> I mean, I think it's really like for me, it's it's for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I mean, these are all the same answers I give when people are like, how do we fix the food system? And it's like, <laughs> you have to make sure people have a good life and the, and that they don't have to work two or three jobs just to eat crap and that they get to cook with, I mean, if they want to eat whatever they want, but like, you know, you get the option to cook, you know, yeah. When, w right now. I, yeah. It's like, we don't. And, but so much of like that moment, I guess when you started writing about food, that moment of like, go to the farmer's market and eat kale and everything will be fine. It really stops short of, of, of like talking about poverty. It stops short of right. talking about the systemic, obviously disadvantage. It's like some people won't be able to do this. Sad for them. <laughs> and then like right. moving on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like we don't talk about how poverty is a, is a condition Ish, we have created. Yeah. <laughs> an unnatural, like it's an unnatural condition. We yeah. made this right. And there's so much, I mean, also like you, the farmer's market thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> what is it? Maybe now it's higher, but it's something like six or 12% of people get their produce from a farmer's market. You know what I mean? So not even like, forget like how much money you can spend. It's just a, such a small, like you're not tackling right. the system. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and that's not to say like, they're not great. Like, and you should keep money in local economies. Like, I think it's all of those things. Right. But 
yeah, we're not even getting to that. And we're not talking about the profound way that we assign morality to food. Like, you know, like that, that you know, people who are poor make bad choices about food. Yeah. Like, yeah, those are choices created by poverty and scarcity. Yeah. Like, <laughs> anyway, we I mean, this is not like a I think you and I are on the same page about this. <laughs> but I think it's like the conversations that we have about food are so not the conversations we need to be having, right? Oh, like we spend a lot of time on that. And I think the same is true for like care and mother, right? Yeah. Like yeah. it is an issue that affects everyone. And it is an issue, it's, it is systemic. Like this right. is, we're talking about like, really, I think we're both talking about like giving people a decent life, which doesn't, we've come so far from that, that it seems really radical to be yeah. like, let's just, you know, take, take it back a step. You know, like to be like money is made up. Are you yeah. with me? Like that seems yeah. really destabilizing to people, but right. it's it's just a truth. And I think like we drift, we just drifted so far from it that it's really um, it's discouraging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I'm hopeful. I think that now people are more, even if it's just like jokes or memes on social media, people are more willing to say that. I guess like people mm-hmm. are more willing to say that all of this is bizarre. Like, even if it's just like today is we're talking on tax day, which is I'm, yeah. I'm, I feel like vomiting cause I still haven't done mine. But, um, <laughs> the idea that like people are now talking about the, uh, you know, why does the, the government let it be so difficult and complicated when they know how much mm-hmm. we owe because they have the documentation and then, and you know, what are we actually even paying for? Like, I think it's important that we have a forum now for those like people to have that conversation, even yeah. if it's a joke most of the time. One of my favorite things that I've seen recently is like, I mean, I saw it on Instagram, but it was a tweet, you know, that whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> but it was like, you know, humans really could have had stargazing and like pottery making and drumming. And now we have credit <laughs> scores and yeah. like, you know, but this idea that like we could just be fucking living. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not. And now it's like we need money. We need yeah. like I just. Ugh. Yeah. You know. We it's, do need a general strike and not to and to not pay anything, not pay our taxes, not pay our student loans, not pay rent. Just like, let's stop and get get this shit sorted out. Yeah, <laughs> like we, we should moving. Yeah. I mean, it's really we shouldn't be privatizing human rights. Exactly. Right? Like, yes, that's where we're at. <laughs> we could have this conversation like in a circle for of like course, two yes. days and it would be great. But. <laughs> You should probably move on. <laughs> no, 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 of course. No, I will. I just wanted to ask, you know, what are the other things you're thinking about that you want to write about? Since you're, you know, I do love that you characterize being a writer as ongoing learning, you know. So what what are you learning about these days? Um, I'm learning about, uh, so again, since I started as a food writer, the fact that I've now written two books on motherhood and mothering seems like a, it's a great surprise in yeah. my life. <laughs> I mean, I think it's very... It's been great for me, but I mean, this is really just one aspect of my identity. Mm -hmm. So I think, but right now the things that I'm really drawn to are not privileging one kind of care. I mean, I think care is a conversation we need to continue to have. And so I want to explore care. Like, so I've been thinking about it in terms of, you know, raising young children, but what is it like to have a, everything from like, you know, how do we encourage people who are not parents to like have meaningful relationships with the youth, the youth mm-hmm. and, and the elders, right? Like mm-hmm. elder care, disability care. And then also how do we build, one of the things that we lack are our institutions don't care about people. Right. Care is not a value that's at the center of institutions. And so I'm interested in exploring like, how might we make that happen? 
And so care in general, an expansive and inclusive and surprising view of care is sort of one of the things that I'm thinking a lot about. I'm thinking a lot about the concept of service. Service to me is very clarifying. Like I think of my work as a writer as about learning, but I also deeply, what gives me meaning is that it, it is definitely of service to people. Mm. And that's one of the things that I cherish about the feedback that I've gotten from people. And so this idea of service and how we can encourage that and people are exploring that. And then the other thing that I'm really into is middle age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm about to be 45. Uh, I never, I don't mean this in a fatalistic way, but I just never really imagined myself at this age and realizing that, that um, my imagination really was pretty short in youth. <laughs> and I feel like I have to believe and I do believe that, you know, some of my most interesting transformations are still ahead of me. Mm-hmm. And so there's really not a literature of like middle age for women. There's like some menopausy stuff, but um, the choices that we make and I don't know, there's some, like in the pandemic too, I've, I've done a lot of self-work and therapy, <laughs> but I've also like, I like haven't been able to escape myself, even though I've mm-hmm. tried very hard through various attempts and substances. <laughs> um, but I feel like, uh, I don't know, like if, I'm about to be 45, like I said, and I just feel like I don't feel confused about who I am. Yeah. And I really like that. And I'm kind of curious, like, where that goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are the things I'm thinking. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thanks so much to everyone for listening to this week's edition of From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy. Read more at aliciakennedy.news or follow me on Instagram, Alicia D. Kennedy, on Twitter at Alicia Kennedy. Alicia Kennedy.